0: I'd like to thank all of you for coming to our seminar weekends here, this little Shangri-La of learning in Southern California. I've only been here a year myself. I've only just discovered the beauty of this campus after 20 years in parish life. But the wonder of this campus is not just the mountains surrounding us, the beautifully manicured lawns and flowers, the architecture, the bright eyed students. The wonder at TAC is arrived at through participation, engagement in the Socratic method, which you have all done. So I'd like to express my appreciation. We had very spirited discussions, and uh, the tutors were admirable in keeping us to the text. I hope that. These good discussions were carried out in a spirit of mutual respect and common desire to reach the truth. I know they were, and I hope you enjoyed them as much as I did. The question before us, in the words of Robert George, though, is what is marriage? Seems like an obvious question, and really, we wonder why we have to take the trouble to spell it out. Permanent monogamous marriage is just natural to the human species, as species natural as breathing, because our bodies and our souls are made that way. If man doesn't breathe, he dies. If our society doesn't marry and have children, the race dies. Our Lord further revealed this in simple terms in Matthew 19, himself quoting Genesis chapter 2. A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The simplest things in life, however, are often the hardest to define. St. Augustine famously said in the 11th chapter of the Confessions, What then is time? If no one asks me, I know. If I wish to explain it to one that asks, I know not. So just as it's difficult to philosophically describe time, so it is a bit difficult to describe time this constant in human civilization, which we call marriage. But we have been pushed by the cataclysmic social revolutions of our time to define marriage, to define it for those who seek to redefine it. On Thursday night, we chaplains showed a classic movie to the students over in Loyola Hall, Casablanca. Now, a lot of you are fans of Casablanca. It's been some years since I watched that 1942 film. And on Thursday night, it struck me how clearly the concept of marriage was assumed in that movie in 1942. You remember the plot. Ingrid Bergman, the Norwegian beauty Ilsa, is in love with two men, unfortunately. And only one of them is her husband. She had been told that her husband had perished in a concentration camp. And a few months later, she fell in love with Rick in a Parisian springtime. Then she finds that her husband is still alive. So what does she do? She leaves Rick. She denies her feelings and leaves Rick to be faithful to her vows. When she and her husband find themselves in Rick's Casablanca nightclub some years later, she realizes she does not have the strength, the emotional strength, to leave him a second time. She says, I can't leave you a second time. You will have to think for all three of us, she pleads of Rick. Deeply in love with her, Rick thinks correctly. He respects her marriage vows and arranges safe transport for Ilsa and her husband to America. Rick is left quite alone in German-occupied Africa. But as the movie ends, you get the sense that Rick will be happy because he's done the right thing. In fact, he kind of makes a joke about it. You remember the police inspector, Luis or Louis, uh, as they're walking off to an uncertain future, probably both of them to some kind of exile, hiding. Uh, Humphrey Bogart says, I think this may be the beginning of a beautiful relationship. So. He didn't mean same-sex marriage, by the way. (laughs) He meant that marriage should be respected, and if we do that, no matter what difficult winds of war may blow through our lives, we will be happy. We will be okay. Well, the year is 2013, and people no longer assume that respecting marriage vows is the right thing. It's been some years since vows have taken precedence over falling in love or that feelings or the vows or promises trump feelings. The responsibility to think through, articulate, and defend marriage falls squarely on the shoulders of every person here. If we Christians do not render this vital service for the common good, I can't imagine anyone who will have the motivation or the tools to do it. So I wish to summarize in, the, in this little presentation, summarize Robert George's natural law arguments for traditional marriage, and then in the second part, Blessed John Paul II's theological definitions of marriage as a sacrament in Familiaris Consortio. I'll present some conclusions, and then we'll have a half hour for discussion, for questions and answers. So the first part, Robert George's arguments on a, philosophical, rational basis for the conjugal view of marriage. So what is marriage according to human reason and cultural experience? Robert George and the other authors have given us many clear and cogent distinctions in their book. I might summarize them, however, in the words of the Archbishop of San Francisco, Salvador Cordiglione. Archbishop Cordiglione is a friend of the, I was going to say parish, a friend of the college, he um, preached at both our convocation mass in 2008 and then again at our chapel dedication weekend in 2009. Apart from his duties as archbishop of the city by the bay, he currently serves as chairman of the USCCB subcommittee for the promotion and defense of marriage. Last month, he spoke to all of his priests on the subject of marriage. <clears throat> and and um, did I say last week? Last month. And then last week he he spoke, he had some of us speak to all of his seminarians. He said these words to his priest, to put it succinctly, sex is either for babies and bonding, or it is for fun and games. The two views are mutually exclusive. Either sex is essentially sacred, or sex is essentially profane. End of quote. It's possible to posit aspects of sexuality in both terms sacred and profane, but it's not possible to posit the essential purpose, the final end of sex in both terms. A minority in this country understands sexuality as essentially salvific. That would be us, hopefully. It's a sacrament that, it's sacramental. Sex is sacred. A minority on the other end of the spectrum understands sexuality as essentially recreational. But the vast middle of this country, I would guess, hasn't thought through the question enough to have any clear ideas about it. Most folks, I suppose, would think of sexuality vaguely as something fun and important and a little sacred, but mostly kind of what you make it. This is the confusion of our time. We have not so much rejected as forgotten the essentially sacred nature of marriage and sexuality. We've forgotten its final end as a sacrament of divine love, a means of sanctification. So what is marriage? No one in the more affluent, more highly educated parts of the world seems able to figure this out. You may know that President Obama was rebuked in Africa a few weeks ago for promoting so-called homosexual marriage on the continent. John Nagenda, one of Uganda's top policy advisors, rejected the American government's agenda in these words. This idea of Clintons, of Obamas, is something that will be seen as abhorrent in every country on the continent that I can think of. Now it's tempting to say, well that's Africa. What do they know? It seems, though, that the most educated we will not not give in to that temptation. Often it is those who are most educated that have most trouble seeing the obvious. The most educated people are making the most contradictory and fallacious statements in this regard. For example, as George points out, if the state grants a same-sex couple a marriage license, it is no rational basis to refuse a marriage license to an asexual arrangement such as two brothers sharing the same house or a polygamous relationship. There's no argument against polygamy. If uh, according to the state's rationale. Revisionists fall into self-contradictions because they fail to make essential distinctions. For example, marriage is distinct from other relationships in its fundamental orientation towards offspring. And I know we probably all consider this question of well, what if a married couple can't procreate, an elderly couple, or what if they can't even consummate the marriage. But it's the fundamental orientation towards the uh, marital act and procreation that distinguishes marriage between one man and one woman. Any other arrangement may be personally beneficial, may have certain goods, but it it is not ordered to the procreation and education of children on which a peaceful society or societal order is based. And so three distinctions that, that George brings out. Let's look a bit more closely at the essential distinction about sex as compared to every other type of human activity. That which distinguishes coitus from any other form of friendship and from recreation in particular is that sex is ordered to the generation of human life. We discussed this. To quote Archbishop Cordulione again, (coughs) Maggie Gallagher, his friend, recently proclaimed a startling discovery. Newsflash, sex makes babies. Seems like we've forgotten that. Archbishop says, I don't know what could be more obvious than the fact that in the act of coitus, a man and a woman join themselves in a one flesh bodily union in the only act by which babies naturally come into the world. The formula is quite simple and clear. Healthy societies are built on healthy, united families. Healthy, united families are based on healthy, happy, harmonious marriages. And at the heart of marriage is the spiritual sexual relationship between husband and wife. It all comes down to that. End quotation from Archbishop Cordeleon. From the time of the Greeks and the Romans and the Egyptians, mankind, it is true, has tried to separate sex from babies. But they had the sense enough to recognize the distinction of marriage. It's not that contraception or homosexuality had came into practice yesterday. It's always been part of our human experience. Of course, the ancients didn't have very effective contraceptive technologies, and so recognizing the link between marriage and children was to a large degree a biological necessity. Whatever the cause, however, sex has been understood in reference to procreation in every culture until our own time. The development of the hormonal pill in the 1950s has enabled us progressively to remove the child from marriage, so the sexual sexual act itself has lost most of its essential meaning. Consider this, the word sex has come to mean any act that produces orgasm. That's the way we think of that word these days. But in that definition, a man can have sex with another man or with himself or with an animal or with an inanimate object. But surely, this is not the concept of sex that can serve as a foundation for marriage. If that were true, I could marry another man. I could marry an animal. I could marry myself, or anything that gives me sexual pleasure. This is not how we define sexual intercourse before 1950. It's it's a change in the term. What What distinguishes marriage from any other relationship? George posits three elements that distinguish marriage from other human relationships, sexual union, natural procreation, and permanence. He follows St. Augustine, who in 401 A.D. wrote de bono Coniugali* on the good of marriage. I'll quote St. Augustine, the good of marriage in every nation and for all mankind lies in the purpose of procreation and in chaste fidelity. But for the people of God, it lies also in the holiness of the sacrament, by reason of which it is forbidden for a woman, so long as her husband lives, to marry another, even if she has been put away by her husband, and not even in order to have children. These, therefore, are the goods that make marriage good, offspring, fidelity, and sacraments. End of quotation from St. Augustine. So George takes these three uh, these three. Uh, goods of marriage, from Augustine, procreation, fidelity, uh, <clears throat> not sacrament, but he takes the first two, and he expands on them. We don't have time really to expand on them right now. So I'll just um, mention, of course, he, w- you, you remember that we spoke of the importance of sexual union. It has an objective bodily dimension, which we call coitus, the joining of complementary sexual organs. This sexual union is inherently naturally ordered to the second distinguishing factor of marriage, the generation and education of offspring. And finally, the fact that sexual union is naturally ordered to procreation brings about the third distinguishing factor, permanence and exclusivity. As John Paul said in his theology of the body, people audiences, the body speaks its own language in the marital act. The body says, I will always be there for you, my spouse, my children. Individuals need a lot of support, particularly during our childhood. Life is difficult and tenuous. We're not sure that we are lovable. We have to learn this. It takes time. In order to flourish, children especially need the constant and dedicated love of a mother and a father. It's quite hard to be faithful to another person until death. In fact, it's humanly impossible to persevere in permanence and exclusivity in the very difficult cases. Infidelity, for example, or abuse. So God gives us the grace of the sacraments. Sexual union between man and woman that is further enriched by the loving self-gift of each is sacramental. It portrays the self-giving love of God for humanity. And so now, in the second part of this presentation, we'll look at the sacramental nature of marriage. Sacrament, by definition, reveals God's love for us and effects that love. So in Familiar's Consortio, issued in 1981 following the 5th General Synod of Bishops the previous year on the rights and duties of the family, is John Paul's most in-depth catechesis on the family, a complement to his 133 Theology of the Body catechesis given from 1979 to 1983. He wrote Familius Consortio ver- in the very midst of all those Theology of the Body audiences. First, let us recall our Catholic definition of sacrament. What is a sacrament? We turn to Thomas Aquinas in his third part of the Summa. In question 60, Thomas defines a sacrament as a kind of sign. A sacrament is defined, in the words of Thomas, as being the the sign of a holy thing insofar as it makes men holy. It's not just a stop sign. It's a sign that makes us stop. It's not just a sign of holiness, but it makes us holy. Or in the words with which we are more familiar, sacraments, Baltimore Catechism, sacraments are outward signs instituted by christ to give grace the catechism of the catholic church adds this celebrated worthily in faith the sacraments confer the grace that they signify so for example a baptism or a wedding looks holy it's a sign of holiness and it points us to god makes us think beautiful thoughts But unlike a mere painting of Christ or a song about God or even the Bible itself, the sacraments actually make us holy if we receive them in faith. The most blessed sacrament, the Mass, from which all the other sacraments flow, does this by reliving the great events of Christ's life in the past and then propelling us forward to the life of the world to come. In the words of Cardinal Charles Journet, the sacramental liturgy, you think of the Mass. What is the Mass? It's the Last Supper, it's Calvary. The sacramental liturgy is full of memories, but these memories are promises, they transcend time. If it communicates the past, it is in order to hasten the future. A sacrament recalls the proofs of God's love in the life of Christ, but in so doing, it brings about a new, a new order, the, 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 the future promise of salvation. The Eucharist most obviously communicates the grace of the Last Supper and the sacrifice of Calvary 2,000 years ago, but it also hastens the future kingdom of heaven when myriads upon myriads of saints will acclaim the Lamb of God at his wedding feast. So speaking of wedding feasts, let's turn to the sacrament of marriage. In marriage, what is this past that the sacrament communicates, that it recalls, and what is the future that it promises? Marriage not only recalls the joyful harmony of Adam and Eve in the garden, so that's the past it recalls, that perfect harmony before original sin, the perfect union between man and woman. It recalls that but it also grants a foretaste of that place where men will be like angels. Jesus said in Matthew 22, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they are as the angels of God in heaven. That's what we're looking forward to. That kind of marriage with the Lamb of God. Not only perfect marriages do this, not only good marriages recall the grace of Eden and promise us the perfection of heaven, but the sacrament per se has this divine potential at every moment. One does not need a perfect or even a good marriage to receive the saving effects of the sacrament. I think that's very important to remember. We think it's up to us. If we don't better our relationship, then we don't get the graces of marriage. That's not true. Sacraments, by their very Reception effect what they signify now to varying degrees, of course. But there is an objective grace communicated by the very nature of the sacrament. John Paul, in Familiar's Consortio, puts it like this. By virtue of the sacramentality of their marriage, spouses are bound to one another in the most profoundly indissoluble manner. Their belonging to each other is the real representation, by means of the sacramental sign, of the very relationship of Christ with the church. We call this in sacramental theology ex operat, ex opere operato, meaning the grace happens simply by the virtue by the virtue of living the sacrament, even if we don't receive it very well. G.K. Chesterton famously said, if something's worth doing, it's worth doing badly. I think everybody has to say that about their marriage. I don't have a perfect marriage, but I have a marriage. I'm not, I don't have a perfect marriage priesthood, but I but I am a priest and I can't give up because it's worth doing. We should stay with our marriages, even in difficult periods, because the sacrament sanctifies us despite our best efforts to contravene it. Now sometimes marriages must break must separate, that is spouses must separate, but the marriage remains unless it is proved invalid through the annulment process. Now we discussed this in our last session about the difficulty of the practical difficulties of administering annulments. But theologically, ideally, we, we have to posit what is ideal and then work from there. Ideally, we, we stay with our marriages because the marriage has an objective reality. My parents will celebrate their 60th anniversary next Saturday, one week from today. It's not been a perfect marriage or even a very good marriage at times. But it is a marriage. And my parents and their children will get to heaven. We will get to heaven because we have, been, we have seen the fidelity in good times and in bad of their vows. A sacrament then reveals and effects God's love, his perfect plan, his ardent desire for our happiness. When we see peace between husbands and wives, when we see them making the effort to love one another, when we see the fruit of their love, especially in their beloved children, we see God's will for our happiness, what he wants for us. You hear happiness. It's sometimes dramatically, but nonetheless truly portrayed in phrases like Jane Austen's heroines who contemplate their future marriages and exclaim, Oh, Elizabeth, I'm the happiest girl in the world. God wants us all to be the happiest boys and girls in the world. And even if we are not married, the very image of a godly marriage makes us smile with happiness. Now here below, happiness generally comes by way of the cross. So John Paul writes in number 13 of the document, spouses are therefore the permanent reminder to the church of what happened on the cross. They are for one another and for the children witnesses to the salvation in which the sacrament makes them sharers. Of this salvation event, marriage, like every sacrament, is a memorial, actuation, and and prophecy. It recalls the past, it it, uh, vitalizes the present, and it promises the future. Marriage does not have to be pleasant in order to be effective for our salvation. Pleasure The absence of strife and pain is not the essence of happiness, at least not here below. That's an essential distinction to be made. Since the fall of Adam, apparently the only way we can learn to love God, to prefer his will to ours, is by the sweat of our faces and by the pain of childbirth. But there will come a day when we will have won the crown by his grace. And marriage, like the other six sacraments, moves us along the path to that glory, the path that is fraught with difficulty. The mentality of easy divorce, of easy sex, of easy marriage is after all predicated upon a mistaken notion of happiness. Happiness above all else is due to the will of God, to be faithful to the natural order. This usually takes a long time for us slow learners. Sacramental marriage teaches us how to love the Father's will over many long and sometimes wearisome but always rewarding years. St. Thomas goes on to note that sacraments are composed of matter and form. In question 60, article 6, he says, it is part of man's nature to acquire knowledge of the intelligible from the sensible. Since the sacred things which are signified by the sacraments are spiritual, and intelligible it follows that the sacramental signs consist in sensible things we can't understand things unless we can touch them we can smell them we can see them we can we can hear them so the matter sacraments are matter and form the matter of a sacrament is something perceivable to the senses like bread or water or oil the form of the sacrament are words which indicate our desire to do what Jesus did. Words like, this is my body, or I, Joseph, take you, Mary, to be my wife. What is the material matter, the material element in matrimony? Matrimony is a sacrament. has to have matter and form. What is the matter, the material uh, element in matrimony? It's not water or oil, as in baptism. It's not bread and wine, as in the Eucharist. The matter in the sacrament of marriage is precisely the human body, the sacred temple of the Holy Spirit. Our flesh is sacred because it becomes the very matter through which the sacrament is confected. Every day, a husband spends his body working long hours to support wife and family. Every moment, a wife gives her body over to the washing, the cooking, the cleaning. They confect the sacramental grace, and surely... The gift of one's self culminates, the gift of one's body is expressed most perfectly in the marital act, the complete gift of self in the loving one flesh union. And so what is the form? The matter is the body. What is the form of marriage? It is, of course, it's the vows that spouses make to God and to each other on their wedding day. These must be renewed every day in words and deeds and in every act of conjugal union to renew those vows. I take you, I accept you, I accept the gift of yourself from God, and I promise to be true to you, to give you myself totally, freely, fruitfully forever. The vows indicate our decisive acts, an act of the will to do what Christ did for us, to give himself to us absolutely. Wedding vows imitate Christ's vows to us, No man hath greater love for his friends than to lay down his life for them. And I lay my life down freely. No one takes it from me. As some of us have discussed, marriage begins to lose its meaning when the use of contraception begins compromising those vows, those total, free, fruitful gift of self signified by the conjugal act. Infidelity, divorce, and finally, the redefinition of marriage are the bitter fruits of contraception. Marriage takes its meaning then from both the matter, the human body of the spouses, and the form, the vows that they make on their wedding day. Life is hard. And marriage is hard. Marriage is a slice of life, a big, fat slice of life. It's probably the most human thing you'll ever do with your life. Marriage can either be a slice of heaven or a slice of hell. When God began the human race with a marriage between Adam and Eve, when Jesus elevated marriage to the level of a sacrament with perhaps the hardest words in the New Testament, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife unless the marriage is unlawful and marries another commits adultery, very hard words. When Jesus blesses this sacrament of the wedding in Cana, and when the Holy Spirit portrays heaven to St. John as a wedding feast in the book of the Apocalypse, when God begins the Bible and ends the Bible with marriage, from Adam and Eve to the wedding feast of the Lamb, we understand God to be saying this, I love you, with a spousal love. Love one another as I have loved you. Freely, fruitfully, faithfully, and totally. Marriage is the great sign, the only sacrament of the seven that is confected outside of the church. For all to see, the only sacrament that those who never go into a church will see, John Paul gives each married couple a mission in number 20 of his document. I quote, To bear witness to the inestimable value of the indissolubility and fidelity of marriage is one of the most precious and most urgent tasks of Christian couples in our time. I praise and encourage those numerous couples who, though encountering no small difficulty, preserve in a humble and courageous manner, that should be persevere, who persevere, performing the role committed to them of being in the world a sign, a small and precious sign, sometimes also subjected to temptation, but always renewed of the unfailing fidelity with which God and Jesus Christ love each other, love each and every human being. We have considered arguments for traditional marriage in the light of both human reason and in the light of divine revelation. I noticed how we struggled in our second seminar with Robert George's book to articulate the argument solely under the light of reason. I also noticed how we felt more confident discussing the question in the third seminar on Familiar's Consortio with the help of the church's magisterium. And so I end this presentation with a question. That's kind of the way we do things around here. The leading question, or the concluding question, is human reason alone, compromised as it is by original sin, sufficient to arrive at the truth of marriage? Can we arrive at the full truth of human marriage by reason alone? Does society need the help of biblical revelation to define marriage? Or is it possible to articulate the truth of the societal good purely by the light of human reason? Okay, the discussion is open. Thank you for listening. So...